Hey everyone, welcome to the fifth episode of the Convergence podcast. And in this episode, I got a chance to catch up with freelance concept artist and educator Charles Lin, who was my very first teacher in the concept art world when I went to study at the FZD School of Design. And in this episode, we spoke about his journey over the years teaching as well as working with the industry titan Feng Zhu. Charles also shared a lot of insights about the mindset one needs to survive and thrive in the industry. So I hope you all enjoyed this episode and let's go. I remember this one incident from many years back when FZD had put out a video of yours when you were still a advanced diploma student. And that's a while back now and that's a that's a long time ago now. Yeah, I remember looking at the student deep into his work and just churning out drawings after drawings. And I think I was still studying architecture at the time and I was just astounded by the amount of work that you were doing each day and then I remember at some point in the video you were talking about your schedule which was like 16 hours or 18 hours work days and you kind of said it so casually and I was thinking man is it going to be that bad when I go to FZD and yeah it was pretty bad that way but well, it was fun I, I mean, would say I think I think context okay first off no one ever believes me when I tell I don't think anybody ever believes in FZD grad when they tell people how much time they commit every day. Yeah. Unless it's a grad, no one ever believes you because this is like, it's impossible, but that's kind of what we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the second thing I'll say to that is, you know, one of the things that Feng definitely pushed, um, you know, one of the things he championed a lot was you have to work this hard as a student to really figure out if this is something that you want to do because you don't really want to figure this out when you're on the job, right? And, and you, maybe you can relate to this as well, but certainly I relate to this, which is uh, every job that I've had since graduating, you know, has been rel- like, relatively speaking, much easier than my time as a student. Definitely, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm definitely, I'm not doing 16, like, well, okay. I have, I'm, I'm doing many projects, so I am probably working 16 hour days. But I'm not spending 16 hours on just one thing, right? Uh, so, yeah, I think, I think that I think the advantage is that you're we're able to maximize our day to a much higher degree if we choose to. Yeah, definitely with more, you know, as, as well. You get more experience and you learn how to, you know, take that 16 hours and learn how to condense it down to eight hours. Um, you also realize the other thing. I think I think uh, after talking about from my video, I think because it's not so much that you're not physically drawing for 16 hours a day because within that you have you know research you have to do you have you know grunt work here like you have rename files and all this stuff so it's not you know literally sitting down for 16 hours yeah there's a lot of stuff leading up to a design right it's like i'm not just kind of sitting around with a cup of coffee thinking like what the hell am i going to solve this design (laughs) i think that part of the thinking process and the admin stuff which goes into the preparation for a concept itself is quite taxing on a brain, I would agree, because without that planning in advance, I think when you actually sit down to start drawing, it's very hard to just out of the blue start drawing on a blank sheet of paper. The hardest thing right now for me is planning and organizing, like responding to emails, getting things planned out, like chasing out the invoices. 
the drawing part is by far the easiest, right? Because we draw so much that you can kind of just, at this point, you can kind of just switch your brain off and just go, go into autopilot. It's, uh, it's all the other stuff. I think Zoe said that a lot. It's like the hardest thing you'll ever do is all the stuff that doesn't involve drawing. Yeah. And I mean, no, you're, you're a pretty organized person. I remember, I mean, the way you schedule classes as well as the way you, I mean, just the persona that you have is of a very organized person. And then even at that point, are you still finding it hard to organize and plan stuff out? Uh, I mean, organization stuff, I, I wasn't, okay. So I wasn't always this organized. Uh, I wasn't as organized when sort of um, when I had you as a student. Uh, I was very disorganized in, in, you know, when I was much younger. And I think I have to, I think one of the reasons why I'm more organized now is I learned the hard way why I needed to be organized. I learned the hard way, like, okay, you don't get just, you know, you know organize yourself. It's going to get really messy. It's just going to be a whole lot of headaches and you're going to get in a whole lot of trouble with a whole lot of people. Uh, so I learned that the hard way afterwards. It's like, okay, let's, let's start to plan things out. Uh, don't get me wrong, there are days where I get really lazy and I don't plan anything. Um, but yeah, I've just learned the hard way that even if, even if something that's just making sure you have a schedule where like, you know, I'm going to have lunch every day or at least on the weekdays between 12.30 and 1.30, right? I think that that helps tremendously in just allowing you to pace the rest of your day, I suppose. I've seen a counter argument to this whole notion of, you know, having such a strict schedule and the organization part of it, where people start questioning whether the person is even enjoying what they're doing anymore, or it's becoming so monotonous. And what is your take uh, on that counterpoint? Okay, so my, my feeling if people are saying that, it's, it's because, uh, like, yeah, my gut response to that would be like, well, that's probably from someone who's very disorganized. <laughs> Because organizing, organizing things is not exactly easy either, and it's, it's really boring to kind of organize things. I mean, there's a kind of truth in that, in, uh, in so much as sure, if you if you run your life like a metronome, or if you run your life sort of so regimented, it can suck a lot of the life out of it. But it's not necessarily about planning everything that you need to do step by step. It's just more about you know setting aside bits of time so that. You go, okay, well, the next two hours I'm doing this task. And I've only got two hours to do it, so I'm going to try and do it in the most efficient way. I'm going to do it in the most enjoyable way because I only have this amount of time to do it. So, you know, if I take it in the context of sometimes I set aside time to play a game or to watch a movie, right? So then I go, okay, I haven't got this, I haven't got this afternoon to sort of play a game to watch a movie. So I'm going to make this a really cool experience. If I'm watching a movie, I'm going to so I'm going to get like the HD 4K version. I'm going to plug into my TV. I'm going to get, you know, get some popcorn out, some chips, get some drinks, mm -hmm. and really try and get the most out of that enjoyment. And then once, you know, once that time period is up, okay, it's back to work. Right. right. So it's more about, I think it's more about maximizing your, your enjoyment or your experience in that time period. So that you actually start to value this time. You start to value what you're doing. Um, but, you know, having said that, Yes, there are there are times where I organize things and it does take the joy out of doing something. But I think that that cost I think is worth it because I think I, I went through this quite a lot when I when I taught you, which is you want to process so that even if you're having a really bad day, you can guarantee an outcome, an outcome, right? Because you're a professional, 
it's your job. Not a gut, you know, it's not a you feel like sort of thing, um, you know, in terms of organizing your work. Now, casual stuff, you know, leisure stuff, yeah, you can get away with not organizing that stuff. It's fine because it's just, you know, it's 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 downtime, right? That was definitely one of the best ethos that I learned at FZDS and from all the art directors there that the difference between being a professional and being a student or a hobbyist, that ability to be able to knock out some work, even if it's at a lower quality, but at least guarantee some sort of result on your off days is what kind of differentiates the people from being a professional and a student. And from that point onwards, what I have kind of started figuring out for my own process has been how do you elevate that level all the time? Like, what is the supreme level professional who can guarantee an even higher result each time? Are you trying to aim towards that at any given point, or do you let that side of things be a bit more fluid? So, you know, in terms of like aiming for professional, like my, my guiding principle is always, if I was in their position, what would I expect? What would I be happy with, right? Within reason, of course, right? Yeah. Um, but I always try and think, okay, well, if I'm, because when, you know, let's say for like, like a client approaches us or your art director approaches you, you know, internally and so on, they're asking you to do a task. Effectively, they're giving you a bunch of resources to do something and they have no idea what they're going to get in return. So they're taking a huge risk. There's a lot of anxiety there. Like you, you don't know if the person's going to come back with something. You don't know if they're going to come back with nothing, right? And so I always try and put myself in the position of, okay, well, if I'm in, if I'm paying someone or if I'm giving someone time and resources to do something, what would what could they do to make me feel less anxious? What could they do to make me feel, even if the result that I got back wasn't something that I liked, but at least I would feel like, okay, I can see that there's value in this, that I, don't, I wouldn't feel kind of hard done by or shortchanged. So I try and kind of think about it like that. I wouldn't necessarily think about it as trying to push to sort of a higher level of professionalism. I just more try to think about it as, okay, well, if I was in their shoes, what would I, you know, what would I be okay with? And I try and gauge it off the type of project, the budget that they have, you know, who they are sort of thing. Because obviously if you, if you got like, um, you're working with an art director who's got, you know, 20 years of experience, uh, their expectations are going to be quite different from let's say a client who, you know, who's coming in from a producer or more of a managerial position, right? Because yeah. what they're going to understand and take after them is going to be very different. So I, I'm more trying, and particularly with all the stuff that I do is freelancing, I try and make sure that I, at least, I try and consider my clients as much as I can. Like, okay, if I was, if, you know, if we switch roles, what would I be happy with? Like, what would I expect? And I try and deliver based off that. Uh, but I also try and be as transparent as I can with them. Like, like if I know that something's going to take me a long time, or if I know that I'm struggling with something, I will make sure to let them know because I would feel that, hey, if I'm working with someone and they don't tell me what's going on, I'm going to think everything is fine. So if, you know, if something's going on, I would want to know. And I wouldn't be particularly annoyed or anything. I'd just be like, okay, cool. If you let me know what's going on, I can plan it. I can manage the stuff that I need to do on my end. And so that way, everybody walks away happy. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. I think you touched upon an interesting point where you're communicating with the art director or the client at an equal footing. And I think that comes from the fact that you have a quite a bit of experience at this point, as well as in teaching and in other fields. So you're able to treat the client and the art director 
as a person rather than a superior which a student or a junior artist might feel where they don't yeah. feel like they have that kind of command to be able yeah. to talk you know do you think so i still treat them as i guess as superiors because at the end of the day they are above me right mm-hmm. they're a boss um you know to put it a little crude but you know at the end of the day they're my boss so they're still my superiors so there is still a difference which is i make suggestions but the end choice comes down to them and it's not my place to to fight them on it i can make a suggestion or recommendation but it's not my place to fight them on it because they will know things they'll know more than i do about the project i have a better idea what's going on i only see like a tiny portion of it uh, but some of that confidence though in order to kind of be okay with that or to kind of as you said engage with them as a, as an individual um some of that confidence probably just comes from the fact that i'm you know i'm a little bit older so now so let's say you know if i was 25 i probably wouldn't have as much confidence mm-hmm. uh i'm in my mid 30s now so there's a little bit more confidence in terms of just okay well you know i'm not a, you know not a kid anymore not fresh out from school or anything uh and it also means that in general i'm a little closer in age to them as well right so that shared life experience sometimes allows not necessarily like a peer to peer conversation but um but at least it gets you a little bit closer right so you can you can have a conversation that's a little uh i guess more familiar i suppose because you know you're closer in age you have similar life experiences you know i can imagine if you're for example let's say right now if you are trying to coach let's say a kid from high school right mm-hmm. kid from high school who is in Kazakhstan and they've come to you and asked for help and you say okay we'll set up like a like a mini project or pretend it's like work you know i can i can imagine that if you were to you know if you're chatting with this you know 15 16 year old kid that dynamic is going to probably be like you talking to you know an, an elder right like your parents or so he's much more senior just because of that age gap just because of that you know that uh, life experience difference because you know now sometimes when i get like really young students i have no idea what they're talking about they're referencing things i'm like what what is i don't know what that is and i feel really old and you interact with students pretty much on a daily basis right yeah so it's you know i think Yeah, definitely when I, you know, when I was still at ZD, the contact with younger students was much higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at Brainstorm now, because, you know, especially since Brainstorm is now online, I do get a nice mix. But there are times where you get like a kid straight up from high school and they'll say something or they'll reference something. Or, or I think the other day I had a class and I'll say, I was talking to the guy, I'll say something like, you know, you know, like, uh, like in Aliens, when this happened and I just got thrown from the class. Uh, in the movies I'm using are you know, really dated. Like, <laughs> yeah, they might not have even seen it at this point. Um, I, I don't know. No, that's right. No, sorry, it wasn't for any of this. I referenced The Matrix and about half the class hadn't seen it before, like the original Matrix. Wait, what? That's, that's like hardly like, 20 years back. No, but for, for, for a lot of these kids, you know, they grew up like they were born in 2000 yeah. so by the time they age where they would watch movies the matrix is already like 10 years old so for them they're like i don't know what the matrix is man that's so unfortunate <laughs> because 
I mean, for you know, for a lot of the people whom I look up to, for them, Star Wars was that threshold movie which kind of brought them into the industry or made them aware of these facets of the world. And I guess for me, Matrix was that movie. So I always find yeah. it a bit surprising when someone hasn't seen it. I had a similar experience at MZD where I was talking to a student and we were talking about Transformers and his conception of Transformers was Michael Bay. My conception of Transformers was like the movie was the, the 80s cartoon one. Transformers Armada. So we're talking... The Transformers see, see, Armada series? No, no, no. So see, that's what you're thinking, right? I'm thinking like Transformers, the movie from the 19... I think it was like Ooh. 87 or 85, like way back, that okay. sort of thing. Like halfway through the conversation, I had to go like, whoa, 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 what Transformers are you talking about? And I was like, oh, God, it was like a 20-year gap. But, yeah, these things are going to happen, right? Like, you know, there's, you know, and I, I, sometimes I'll warn students as well. I'll say, hey, you know, you guys want to get into this industry, you need to watch movies like Jaws. You need to watch movies like E.T., even though they're, you know, pretty old now because, as you guys get from, let's say, student to a junior to a mid-level to a senior, et cetera, the guys you're going to be dealing with above you, like your art directors, you know, let's say if you're, in your, if you're in your 20s and you're getting, the art directors you're dealing with are going to be in their 50s. And they're the movies that they grew up with. So they're the movies that they're going to talk about when they're saying, hey, do it like this. Mm, and that's so, true. Well, knowing, you can't communicate with them effectively. Right. Now, vice versa, if I'm a senior art director or if I'm a, sort of just a, a team lead or something in the studio, I would need to probably find out what's new and what's trending because you need to facilitate that conversation, right? If, if it only goes one way, it doesn't really work. And I think there's also an aspect of knowing the history of the field that you're in. It could be any field. Like if you're an yeah. archaeologist, you go research and read books, right? So... It's, it's not that absurd for somebody to ask a person to watch the older movies from the 70s or the 80s, even before that. Oh, for sure. Like, I think it's, you need to know where things come from. Like, so that, because we have a lot of, we have a lot of visual shorthand, right? Like, you know, for example, like the big red phone on the desk, we all know kind of what that means. So that you can create these visual shorthands in your designs. So that, you know, as an audience, you know, if you have a, you know, if you have a, piece of concept art, like a key frame or something that pops up, the audience only has like a split second to understand what they're looking at. So having that, code, like understanding where that coded language comes from means that you can then play around with a lot more. Otherwise, you're kind of just always stuck with the big red phone. Can't do anything else to it. But if you know the history of the big red phone, and you know where it comes from, you know what it does, then you could change that, right? You could... It still has the same functions, still has the same visual language, but it's, it doesn't necessarily have to be this old style sort of rotary phone sort of thing. Definitely. And of course, it also gives you an edge as a designer. The more, the more you know about visual library from any era, it always gives you the edge to be able to come up with better ideas, more interesting ideas. And especially thinking about how things can be brought back to a different era always gives a good, interesting design based on the project, of course. The, the stock and trade, I think, for concept art or concept artists is really just our breadth of knowledge, right? what we can tap into. Uh, like, you know, I, I heard, a, I, I was listening to a talk, it was quite a while ago, I was listening to a talk by Mike Hill, 
and he was uh, he was explaining how he went and found out how concrete cracks like the the pressure points so that when he was designing like an environment or something he would know where to put the cracks where it felt natural it felt realistic wow. right? and here's the thing is like well you don't need to know it 100 percent but you need to kind of have an idea so that when you put these things in you're not randomly placing them down in the image you kind of have a rough idea where they go and i think that's really important concept about this which is we just we don't necessarily need to know we don't need to be experts in everything but we do need to have have a pretty good grasp of general knowledge right so you know my free time it sounds it sounds incredibly boring but in my free time i watch videos on town planning <laughs> i watch videos on like really inane things just to go like oh i wonder how that works and i found that that's been really useful uh, but then, I'm, you know, I'm a very, very boring man. I don't really do much in my free time. But the brilliance of this is that you never know when that knowledge can come back to you based on the project that you're working on. So it's always like you're adding to that armory and the arsenal that you can at one yeah. point use when it's needed. And if you, you know, if you're constantly looking at other games, not to say that you shouldn't look at other games or other movies, but if you're constantly looking at that stuff, then that's kind of just your visual language. You only know what other people have done. You only know what you've seen in games or movies or TV shows. And you know, you don't get, you know, you don't get like a different view on the world. You don't get different ideas, right? And uh, it's kind of like I think the result is you end up getting like games or movies where it just looks like the previous version. Yeah. Uh, it just looks like a, a lighter version of the other thing. And that, that, that never leads well. It doesn't lead to a good experience as, a, as an audience. It doesn't lead to a good uh, sort of return on the market right? as, a, as, a, as a financial product. And probably, I imagine, if you're working on something like that, it's going to be really boring because it's just the same thing, kind of just, you know, rehashed. Talking about inspiration or ideas from other fields, I know you used to work as an industrial designer, right, before getting into concept art. I did. I was, I was uh, for a very brief period, I was a product designer. I was also a, um, I guess, I guess a, a systems designer, I think is what they called it then. But I worked in government um, policy research. Oh, so, okay. was, I, so, yeah, I had a, industrial design is a weird thing. <laughs> The traditional part is that it's products, right? So kettles, cars, bridges, and things like that. But if you, you know, for example, I grew up in Australia and I went to university in Australia. Most Western countries don't have a major manufacturing uh, manufacturing sector anymore, right? Most of that stuff has been offloaded onto, uh, let's say, developing countries or countries with a weaker currency, just because it financially makes a little bit more sense. Mm -hmm. So what that created in the, in the 2000s, or I guess, I guess the late 90s into 2000s was the shift of overall, what the hell does it mean to be an industrial designer, right? What, what's the context of you know, an industrial designer in, in, in a Western and uh, developed country? And then it became, okay, well, what's the next logical step from designing products? Well, okay, it's designing systems. So your baseline is I design, let's say, a mobile phone. Okay. But what's more important is who's designing the system that allows the mobile phone to work, right? Because 
you can't have a mobile phone, you, or for example, you can't have a car if you don't have roads, petrol stations, uh, mechanic places, right? So the same thing with mobile phones or any other appliance or product that you have, you need all these other things to get this one thing to work. So that became the next thing, which is okay, well, if you don't have a manufacturing sector or you can't compete with, let's say back then it was competing with China in terms of manufacturing. If you can't compete with China, what can you do? Okay, well, what they don't know, I mean, now they've caught up, but you know, back in the 2000s, they hadn't quite caught up yet, which was okay, well, what they can't do is design the systems. What they can't do very well is design all the stuff that actually make, you know, the logistics of it, I guess. And so that kind of led into, that was kind of my, that was what I focused on in my studies. Mm -hmm. And that kind of led to the policy stuff. And, you know, for a long time, concept art was never on my radar. Yeah, I was just about to come to that. Like, how did you transition or even come to know about concept art from a completely different field like this? So I, I knew about, okay, I didn't necessarily know about concept art, but I knew that this was something that people did, right? I didn't know really what it was called, but I knew that was something that people did because I came across like some old, um, like Noman videos or DVDs back then, right? And, but, you know, you're thinking like this is early, early 2000s, right? This is when Google wasn't even the dominant search engine. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what I kept thinking was, you know, well, you know, that's, that's something what the Americans do, right? We'll let the Americans do what, whatever it is they do. And, uh, you know, I'm stuck in Australia. What am I, you know, I can't do anything about it. So I kind of left it like kind of just sitting there and it was just one of those things of like, well, there's no, you know, no way in hell I can ever get, you know, do that sort of work. And I guess being kind of young and stupid, I also just assumed that America was such a far away place that you know, it wasn't within reason. Sounds really silly now how often I've moved. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but that yeah, is a while back. That's what, about uh, one and a half decades ago you're talking about? You're uh, looking about 20 years ago. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. Because we're 2020, right? So we're all going 2000. So, uh, so I was like looking back down, I was like, oh, okay, you know, it's a long way to go. America is a kind of scary place, particularly like I'm an 18 year old kid. Um, and it wasn't until I actually I ended up in Canada um, doing my postgrad. Okay. Because uh, I've always had an interest in I've always had an interest in teaching or in education. So I ended up in Canada. It was only when I was in Canada I realized, like, hang on, wait, I'm in Canada now. Like, I'm in Vancouver. Like, EA's major hub is here. Mm -hmm. I was like, wait a minute, I can actually do this. So that's when, you know, that, that spark kind of came back again. It wasn't something that I didn't, like, I completely ignored. It was something that I always wanted to do, but I just thought it wasn't, you know, just wasn't within my reach. But then I, for some reason, I ended up in Canada, and it kind of clicked. I was like, wait a minute. I can actually do this now. Like, it's not that scary flying across, you know, you know, halfway across the world sort of thing. So when you're, that uh, proximity to the industry suddenly sparks that possibility back in you that yeah. you can. And then I met, uh, I met a couple of people who were in set design. Uh, so one of my classmates was one of the designers for Tron. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so I think it was Tron Uprising, like the, the more recent one mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, with old Jeff Bridges. Uh, so she, you know, she was involved in that, and then she kind of, you know, and then I met uh, another classmate of mine who was a director, but before that, he used to be a producer. He was a producer on Need for Speed Underground. So this is going back even further. Um, but you know, I was chatting with with these people because Vancouver is a very small place. Vancouver is a very very small place, and so it 
you know, you kind of chat to people and you get to figure, you get to figure out like, oh, actually, this is not some weird sort of fantasy pipe dream that, you know, you kind of, it's not like a movie thing in terms of like a fantasy. It's like, actually, this can be real. I'm actually meeting people who worked and made a living doing this stuff. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, from there, it kind of, you know, picked that interest again. And yeah, you know, long story short, I ended up at, uh, ended up at FZD and then finished up there and ended up working for Fang on his, on his films and teaching you. Wait, you just went through many years of journey too quickly. I want to deconstruct it a bit more. Um, firstly, I wanted to talk about like when you were a student over there. I'll give you a chronological breakdown then. I'll give you a breakdown of account how it So I was at, I graduated university and then I worked for a little bit. And I actually worked in a game company in, uh, in the late 2000s, right? Now, at the time, it was like, it was this weird, um, like it was sheer luck I ended up working there. Uh, I went to this um, symposium with a friend of mine and we were talking about games. And then, uh, I, you know, I was kind of young and reckless and I, at the end of the queue, and I put my hand up and I said, hey, will one of you guys give me a job. <laughs> well, one of the guys went, well, you know what, why don't you show me your stuff you know, after, afterwards, you know, after this, the talk and we'll see. So I showed him stuff. He's like, okay, it's pretty cool. And then a week later, you know, HR calls, hey, we want to sign you for like a junior position. And so I worked with them, but unfortunately, um, unfortunately, the financial crisis hit. Uh-huh. So this is like, right? Financial uh, crisis came through, uh, pretty much, you know, gutted the industry because, you know, Australia was an outdoor, was a good place for like smaller studios because it was cheap for American studios, right? But suddenly, if you're dealing with the Australian dollar being on parity with the US dollar, well, why don't they just move everything back? So that kind of gutted the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And from there, I was like, okay, well, I guess this game thing is kind of dead. And my original plan was to go, you know, go into education anyway. So I thought, okay, well, I guess I'll go do my postgrad stuff. And I was advised, don't do your postgrad stuff the way you did your undergrad. Uh, you want your experiences. So I thought, well, Australian dollar is doing pretty good. The American dollar or the Canadian dollar then was doing terribly. So I thought, oh, I'll go to Canada. <laughs> Smart move. So yeah, so I went to Canada and then obviously you know, met all these people. And after I finished, I came back and I was teaching at my home university. And what had happened was I had this particular student, I was teaching there for about a year or two. I had this particular student that um, we had unfortunately failed several times. He worked very hard, but he just, things just didn't click and it happens. And so, you know, I was trying to chase him down because I was like, okay, I really don't want this guy to fail again because it's a lot of paperwork. Uh, so I was like, I'm going to try and hunt him down. I went to find his class. And for whatever reason that day, the friend of mine who was originally teaching that class was out sick. So they had a substitute teacher in. And he was showing videos of the graduate FZD. I was like, what the hell is this? It's like, oh, this is this is finishing school in Singapore. And I was like, holy crap. Uh, and then so that night, I saw it, obviously. It was like that night, I you know, went on the website, I saw the student work. Kicked my butt. So I was like, okay. Uh, and then so I applied, and then you know they got back to me. They said, hey, we don't have an intake for when you want it, um, but we do have the next one. I was like, okay, cool. And I was lucky. I was lucky in that... Um, one of the conditions I set, my, set myself for drawing was that I 
I needed to have I, I needed to have a guarantee that I I'd have a job when I got back. Right. So I talked to my I talked to my boss at the time. He said, "Okay, well, how long's work?" I said, "It's just a year." He said, "Okay, well, you know, if you can't if you finish after a year and you come back and you want the job again uh, as a, as a lecturer, you know, they're still here. I'll, you know, I kind of keep it warm for you know for a year. So that was a nice guarantee." Yeah, that's a pretty good safety part, net to have, definitely. Yeah. It definitely made me feel a lot safer because, uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it was a it was a good job. And the second one was I didn't know this at the time, but my aunt, um, my aunt had uh, an apartment in Singapore, and the tenants had just moved out. Oh. So these things got lined up perfectly, which is like, well, why don't you just stay there? You know, uh, the tenants had moved out. We weren't actually going to, you know, we were actually going to just renovate it. So we weren't expecting to, you know, they weren't expecting to rent it out for a little while. And so everything kind of lined up. So yeah. So I went to Singapore, did the one year, and you know, completely got my ass handed to me in that one year. And then realized that okay, if I really want to do this, I, I need that. Uh, as as I told Zoe at the time, uh, to those of you listening, Zoe was one of our lecturers or our chief instructors at NDD. Uh, as I explained to him at the time, I was like, okay, well, I need to. You know, I need to stack the odds in my favor. I need to be maybe not employable. So yeah, I went ahead and did that, and that was that was a night and day experience for me. Like I hated the one year program. I absolutely loathed it. If you asked me to do it again, I wouldn't do it again. But I loved the advanced diploma um, program. And I think it's because I don't deal well with quick turnarounds. Like I don't deal well with you know, one week projects. I deal really well if you give me like six months of chew on or even three months of chew on like the one project. What a really great experience with the advanced deployment program. That gives uh, you the time to really dig deep into the project and the subject yeah. matter and kind of understand it at a deeper level before diving into the project. So I thought that, you know, so I really, really enjoyed my time. And then once I finished, about a month after I'd left, Fang contacted me and said, hey, do you... It was actually it was over when I went with them to GDC. Mm-hmm. Um, GDC, it's kind of fun. The first day we were at GDC, and I was hoping to like shop around my work at GDC. The first day, Frank sat me down and he's like, "Hey, do you want to work for me?" Wow. Like, of course, uh, and thankfully as well because I got sick, so I could I lost my voice for the entire event. So even if I wanted to sell my book, you wouldn't have been able to do so. <laughs> so anyway, so someone offered me a job the first day I was there, and I took it. And I later found out that he would, he was already considering uh, bringing me on towards the end of my AD program. And a little bit of it was a little I was a little annoyed because like, buddy, you could have told me that way I didn't have to like sell all my furniture and like move all the way back home. You know things like that, and I was like, ah, oh, but you know, it's, it's kind of like nitpicking little, you know, nitpicking a gift horse, right? Yeah. Once you've got the job, then kind of analyzing yeah. it a bit too much. So yeah, and then so obviously he offered me a job, and I worked for Fang freelance for a couple of months, and then during that time, he was he asked me because he knew that I was a teacher beforehand, and he asked, hey, you know, you're doing really well, you know, I like working with you. Do you want to come and teach while doing, like, continuing doing this stuff? And hell yeah, I was not going to say no. <laughs> so I took the opportunity, but I, I did learn one big lesson there, which is don't get greedy. I mm-hmm. think that was the 
big mistake. I got really greedy. And I got a bit of a dressing down from my shame about it. And it was absolutely right. I thought that I could handle full-time freelance and full-time teaching. And I was really wrong. I, you know, that I got too greedy because I want that. Like I said, I like money, so I want more money. So I, I, you know, I got a bit of a dressing down for him, but he was absolutely right. Like he, was, he, he really hammered home in like, you know, like what we talked about earlier, like organization, right? Really organize your time properly. Don't commit if you don't, if you know that you don't have the hours in the day, right? And so, you know, and thankfully, Feng was, uh, was actually, in hindsight, very forgiving. Uh, in that, you know, he let me kind of change a couple of things around and actually ended up doing freelance for him just part-time instead. Okay. So then the teaching became the core focus for your time over there. Yeah. So teaching became the core focus. Uh, and, I, and, you know, thinking back on it now, it was, you know, it was very uh, generous and forgiving for him to do that because he could have even said, no, like, you know, you're clearly not prepared to do this. Um, you know, let's, let's just kind of Let's just go back a step and let's just, you know, go back to Australia and we'll just do freelance sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But, but he, you know, he was pretty forgiving about it. And yeah, so we worked something out. I was like, okay, cool. Uh, so, but yeah, and, and this might explain why when I was, you know, when I was teaching you, sometimes I was, you know, a little bit grumpy is because I was tired. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you were a really good teacher. You were one of the better teachers I've had over the years, definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Uh, but I, you know, the same teachers that you had, obviously, apart from myself, because I was one of them, but the same teachers you had, I had. Yeah. Uh, and I thought one of the great things about SED, which is there was a very clear goal. There was a very clear common goal that every instructor knew what the objective was. And so you never got any, you know, you might have conflict, like conflicting information about how to get there, but everybody was very clear about where you needed to go and i thought that was you know possibly one of the the clearest educational experiences that i've ever had like everybody knew exactly including the students everybody knew exactly what the end goal was definitely uh, you know, that was incredible as a student like it's so motivating i think another factor is that because everyone who's at that institute is there to do their work well very few people, a very, very tiny percentage are there to just screw around. So that also adds to the clarity and proper organization of the entire institution from an administrative point of view, as well as from a student-teacher relationship point of view. You, had, you, were in a, you were in a great class. You guys were like crazy. Yeah, our batch uh, is pretty workaholic. Well, I mean, you know, you, you got a grad show out of it as a result. You know, we, FZD doesn't give grad, like FZD doesn't run grad shows unless they feel the work is there. Uh, because grad shows cost, the, the school doesn't make any money on the grad show. They, they lose money on the grad show. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they only do it when they feel like, okay, you know, it's exactly how Feng, you know, wrote it to us, which is you have to earn it. Like your work, not just you, right, as an individual, but the class, the work has to be strong enough, right? Uh, otherwise, it's, it's just not, you know, it, it doesn't matter if there's only one good piece. You need everybody to have really good pieces to do it. So if I, you know, if I remember right from your batch, the ones that, you know, yours, yours stood out, uh, Hampus' stuff stood out as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Tesla stuff stood out. Like there was a lot of stuff going through our list because I remember I was with you guys getting all the stuff printed out and everything. Uh, so that, you know, you, you came from like, you know, a very, very strong class, but at the same time, you guys as a class worked well together. Uh, there's no real dramas. Everybody's kind of helping each other out. I think that's really important. Sometimes you get, sometimes you get like sort of mixtures of people who, for whatever reason, right, just probably a combination of different things. It just doesn't work. It's just, a, it's just bad chemistry. So sometimes you get unlucky. <laughs> that that kind of happens. That's true. I think it also serves as good experience to kind of help other people around you and that experience translates over to people working in studios or even kind of networking with people down the line because they're not your family members so you have to like learn to talk with new people and yeah, kind of yeah, develop sure. that relationship right i mean I, I definitely found like you know i i gained the most in terms of my ability and my skill i gained the most like working with my classmates or actually having to teach because it forces you to think about why you do things in a certain way. So you're not just randomly doing things. It forces you to think about, okay, we do this like this for this reason. And it starts to, you start to codify or you start to structure your process. And it makes that process a lot more robust. Uh, and it means that when you need to explain to someone like what you're doing or what you're trying to do, you know how to articulate it. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, if you get in, you know, you know, for those, you know, if you're a student, I think if you get in a class where everybody is wanting to help everybody, that's that's the best thing you could ask for. That's true. If you get everybody is just kind of out for themselves, you're not going to get anything out from this. It's going to be so stressful. One thing I noticed but, about your journey as of now is that you're one of those artists who have spent an, a tremendous amount of time teaching professionally, and it's not just kind of recording a screen and selling a tutorial. It's like hands-on teaching people, learning from them, teaching them the very, very basic fundamentals of every single aspect of the industry. Does it get tiring for you after a point repeating the same thing over and over again? Uh, yes and no, right? Uh, by this point, it's pretty clear and I'm pretty happy with where my career is going and that my primary focus is education. Right? Okay. Uh, and I, you know, I all I've always wanted to be a teacher. I've always wanted to be in education. So, you know, I'm quite happy with where my, you know, where my career is going. So on that part, you know, it's still it's exciting, and it is always, it is always, always exciting to when you see the moment, like the student clicks, like that that part in the mind kind of clicks and they get it. It's always a really great sort of experience. But, you know, like anything else in life, there are times where sometimes you just want to tear your hair out because sometimes you, sometimes you get students who are very stubborn. They'll fight you every step of the way. I remember you fought me like quite a bit as well. Yeah, <laughs> I, I probably did. <laughs> uh, so, but, you know, sometimes you get students who fight you all the way, so it's a little bit harder, but, you know, it's also part of the job. Just like sometimes you get designs that are a little bit trickier, and so it takes a little bit more time to do. Um, and yeah, sometimes it gets, it does get a little bit frustrating because, you know, I think the frustrating part is not so much having to repeat this over and over again. I think the, the frustrating part is more when you see that the student understands, but they just don't.
don't want to change because whatever they're doing is just easier. And it's that refusal to change because it's hard that bothers me the most because then it's, well, why are you doing this? If you just wanted something easy, you could have just kept drawing in your own time. You didn't have to show up to class or you didn't have to join a class because you join class. I like to think about it like this. If you join a class, you're not just there to get information, right? It's a cool way to think because you have classmates. If you stick around and waste time, you're not just wasting your time, right? you're wasting everybody else's time. Now, I'm paid regardless, mm -hmm. right? So I'm, it doesn't affect me. But I, you know, it, it makes me very annoyed because then I see, well, you have people here who genuinely want to learn or who are really struggling and who, who need sort of more of that one-on-one -on -one time. But you're kind of messing around and you're, you're just eating that space. And so that's, that frustrates me. Um, but I think, you know, anybody who's, <laughs> anybody who's worked in the office, you've worked with someone who's just, you can't help but go like, why are they here? What do they do? <laughs> yeah, there's always some people like that, definitely. So I yeah, want to... Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, on the whole, in terms of teaching, you know, it does get tiring sometimes, but it's, it's very few and far between. Very few and far between. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, since you have been doing it for so long, there's definitely something that you're getting out of it as well, that it makes it worthwhile putting in the effort to teach people. I do forget sometimes, like, whether I've told, uh, I've, you know, because I run through these classes quite a bit. And, and so sometimes I forget whether I've told the class, that, like, a particular story or if I run through, like, the right material. But I do find myself occasionally stopping and asking part, like, wait, have I told you about this story? <laughs> or have we covered this? Or did I cover this with another class? Uh, particularly now I'm in Taiwan, uh, you know, temporarily, and because of the time zone difference. Uh, sometimes it gets a little bit wild where I'm like, wait, what, what time is it? What, what day is it? Because I'm still, like, I'm here, but my work schedule clock is still based in LA. Okay. So <laughs> I'm like, wait, is it Monday or is it Tuesday? I don't know. That's roughly a 12-hour difference, I'm guessing. Uh, yeah, it's a big deal, I think. So on average, we, uh, like, we're a day ahead of the, of the U.S., it's not like a, it's not like a clean, I think it's like, it's like a 16 hour difference or something, but it's, it's not like a clean switch where it's like, oh, it's 7 a.m. here, so it's 7 p.m. over there or something. Okay. Uh, it gets kind of, uh, it's kind of tedious sometimes when I do this uh, time zone stuff. Awesome. So I wanted to ask you one thing earlier, when you were working with Feng, how was that mm -hmm. experience for you? Because He's somebody whose videos you would have seen when you were watching the Nomon videos back in the day and again learning um, from him and then finally getting to work with him. How was that? Oh, it, it was both a great and horrible experience. Uh, okay. So it was, a, it was a horrifying experience because um, he's incredibly fast and it's, it's very hard to keep up with him. On top of that, because Feng came through, like he's, you know, he started as a concept artist before he got to the position he is in today. Uh, and so you can't really like cut corners with him because <laughs> yeah. you'll know corners. So it became kind of stressful. It's uh, almost like then, any trick that you might try pulling, he has already done that a decade before you. 
And so that was really scary. And the thing is, like, it was, it was so scary you're trying to keep up with him. And he's, you know, he's working at like three in the morning, he's still working. Wow. Like that just doesn't stop. And so you feel, you know, there's a part of you where like, you know, because there is that camaraderie, there is that team effort that you feel kind of bad if you're not kind of doing it. Um, so then, you know, that part was kind of scary, just that realization of like, oh my God, this guy, oh, he just works so incredibly fast. You know, there were times where you would do a design and, it, you know, and you'd you know, do a couple of comps and things and send it over to him. And he's like, no, this is not it. This is not it. You know, and you do this for like a whole day. Like, okay. And he's like, oh, no, no, okay. You know, hold on. And five minutes later, you get this new comp that comes in that's perfectly done. He's like, okay, just go do this. <laughs> oh, such a failure. He's like, God damn it. Uh, but yeah, again. But then that experience eventually resulted in you getting your first film credits as well, right? So there's something yeah, great out of that. Environments have never really been my strongest suit, but I definitely know that my ability to, to look at composition and to understand how to compose for film, at least at a, you know, not at the senior level, but at least at a relatively competent level, considerations like sound, like budgeting, I wouldn't have any of that if. Um, you know, if, if Feng didn't give me a chance, because he was also quite generous in that he would sit us down and explain to us how a lot of things worked. Now, I don't think that if you were working at most outsource studios, the art director or the director would give you the time of day just because they'll have other things going on. Um, but it's one of those things I think that, you know, Feng, I don't think he could ever shape that teaching side of him like, as well. That's true. So if you're also want to like teach yourself so i thought that was great so that was, you know there's a lot of wonderful things but at the same time i think one of the serious things is just that realization of good god this guy is just fast and he's just you know he's always switched on like i i can't i struggle to keep up with it um and that you know and at times i can get very disheartening because you know it's, it's just you're constantly behind mm-hmm. uh but the great thing was, yeah, you know, like I mentioned earlier, he was quite forgiving. If he could see you try, I think that was the one thing that people never really gave Fang that much credit is like, because, you know, in the classroom setting, we have to give critiques very, very quickly. And he's trying to model it off as well, off a real sort of working environment as well. Like if you're a three-hour class, you have 30 students, you need to give them feedback and then you need to do a demo. That's not a lot of time, right? Uh, so I think a lot of people, one of the other complaints about FDD early on was that instructors played favorites. Mm-hmm. Now, I never really thought instructors would play favorites. But I think a lot of people were annoyed that, well, I didn't get like a long sort of feedback session or something. And so people were assuming that if your work was bad, Fang would just ignore your work. Um, but what I quickly realized when I started, you know, getting to know him a little better was that. It wasn't so much that like he would ignore your work, it was more like if you could see that you were trying and your work was terrible, he would spend the time. But if you could see that you didn't care about the work, he then wouldn't care about giving you feedback. It was very much based on that. Is he would put in as much as you were willing to put in yourself. Because I remember the days where I was doing freelance, like well into the well into the night, and he would still take time out to give me feedback. Right. Uh, 
which I subsequently I haven't had any other art directors do that with me. Like at six, they're done, they're gone, they're home. Right. Right. That's it. Uh, which is, you know, there's nothing wrong with that because you should only, you really should only be working the hours you're paid. One for like probably for like certain legal reasons and accounting, you know, things, or just for your, you know, your mental health. Uh, but that, yeah, that level of care, I think the, I don't think you could ever really shake that teaching aspect. Um, but what I did find was, uh, you know, what I did find was kind of interesting was like, he's a, he's a very private man. Um, for a person who does like, like design cinema, makes all these videos and talks about, uh, you know, his work and everything, he's a very, very private man. Um, so, you know, Fink's personal life, I actually don't know that much about him. Though I, you know, you know, I worked with him for two years, uh, over two years, and I studied under him for about two years, you know, so like four, you know, over, over four years. I don't know much about him. And I never thought to pry either, though, because mm-hmm. I figured, well, if you're a private person, you're a private person. You know? uh, yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. So from there, then you moved on to LA, and was the teaching part in Brainstorm immediately after you moved there? Or was that no, the very no, reason why you went there? I, I took a break, actually. Uh, after I wrapped up teaching, in, uh, or after I wrapped up my stuff in Singapore, I was a little burnt out because I kind of like did like trying to do too much too quickly. And I went back home and, you know, I actually, uh, and people always think I'm joking when I say this, but for, you know, when I went back home after Singapore, I literally felt like maybe I should get like a, like a real estate license and sell houses. It's <laughs> a, like a lot less stressful. Um, but by sheer chance, I, you know, I guess not sure chance. I applied to uh, at, the, at the then my then girlfriend, I guess now wife, uh, wanted to go to brainstorm, and I thought, cool, let's go to brainstorm together. Okay. And so I thought, okay, well, I don't really want to do any of the classes, and I had heard from another MCD grad, uh, Greg Westfall, about John Park's mentorship and what he was getting out of it. So I thought, you know what? I want a bit of a break. Um, and I think I'm a little bit over like classes. Why don't I do a mentorship? Because one thing I really liked doing was characters. And we didn't do a lot of characters at MZD, right? There's a, it's a very pragmatic approach at MZD, which is environments are more likely to get you work. So that's what we focus on. Yeah. And that we only have one. But I really wanted to do characters. So I thought, okay, well, why don't I use this time you know, to kind of do some characters with John? Because John had done some characters. He'd also done a, you know, a crap load of mechs when he was on Hawking. So I thought, okay, cool. I'll, you know, I'll do that with uh, John. And then you know, I was over there in LA for about three months doing that and wrapped up with that and then came back to Australia and then started, you know, from those pieces I did with him, started getting freelancing work. And at that point, I think I... I had an offer for Creative Assembly. It was actually the second time I had to Creative Assembly, and they they reached out again. You know, when I applied again, they have you know they said, "Hey, would you come back for an interview and all this stuff?" Um, and I was all set ready to I was all set ready to uh, move to the UK. And unfortunately, the, the you know so, as far as I was told, um, the project cancelled, or they might have found a better candidate, okay. you know, which is which is not reasonable. I give you my time, you go, it's not better. Yeah. So it's kind of like, 
no, I missed out on that opportunity. And, you know, lo and behold, light box was rolling around the corner. I was like, oh, why don't I go to light box and find it here? I didn't see if I can kind of, you know, hustle my way into some work. And at light box, I kind of did like a little bit of a Hail Mary and asked, uh, I asked John and James, like, hey, what do you guys think about bringing me on as, as a teacher? Right, there's this really cool visa that Australians can get called an E3 visa. It's really cheap. It's, it's very, it's different from an HB1 visa. Um, you know, it's really easy to get. There's, there's a quota that never gets hit. Why don't we try that out? And I was really surprised because they were very excited about it. I think uh, Lightbox was October, right? Something like that. Mm -hmm. I think my, and then by the time we, no, Lightbox was September. September, September probably yeah yeah and then by the time we got to November like the ball was rolling on getting all this stuff done uh, and then come like come like January no yeah come come January my visa was approved oh that, that's uh, quite then, quick yeah yeah and then so obviously you know end of January February I you know made my way over to the states so that was you know that was kind of like holy crap I <laughs> I didn't expect you know that to you know that to happen so quickly. Now, in between that, I've been doing tutorials for for John and Matt through um, their, their foundation group. So I think probably they looked at that and they looked at um, you know they looked at I suppose my I guess my conduct uh, when I was doing the mentorship, and then you know they probably saw that you know well that okay well I worked for Fang and we left on you know I left FCD on good terms. Um, they were like, okay, you know, it seems like a pretty safe bet. So yeah, there are ones. But awesome. I have to say, like, I think I would have stayed working at MCD for the rest of my life had it not been in Singapore. <laughs> not, no, no dig on Singapore, but the, the humidity really got to me. Like the weather was really deciding factor. I would have loved to stay working, uh, working there. Like I really, I enjoyed my time working there. I thought it was great. The, it really was just after a while, like that humidity, that weather, because that humidity, it, it kind of saps all the energy out from you. Yeah, that's definitely yeah, a draining not. weather condition. That's for sure. Uh, and yeah, and then I found myself in a desert. So I went from like a really humid place, high humidity. Like this is really so I was curious, yeah. I mean, in terms of the types of students who, were, who you were teaching in FZD versus in Brainstorm, What's the difference in the mentality and the mindset, even the age group, I would ask? So I can only speak from, I suppose, like the online component of Brainstorm because I didn't get to experience too much of the in-person stuff because coronavirus came in, kind of ruined it for everybody. Yes. The biggest difference is the, the, is the, the distance, is distance in so much as you go to FCD, you know you're there for a year. So you're committing 100%. Mm -hmm. And you have no distractions because you're in a foreign country and you have nothing to do. You know, Singapore is kind of boring, right? It's very, very safe, but it's also kind of boring. Right? It's not like a, it's not the most exciting city on earth. And the exciting stuff there is very, very extensive. So as students, it's not exactly, we could, we could enjoy it. Uh, so I think that's the that's the biggest difference in that NCD students have a very clear long-term path. And the other thing is, you know, when you put forty thousand dollars on the table, like you get serious very quickly. Definitely. 
you have no choice but to be serious at that point. Yeah, well, brainstorm is more of an a la carte system where it has room for people to kind of dip their toes in. So if you're not sure if this is what you want to do, I think it's a great, uh, it's a great place to kind of test it out. Because per class, it's like between like seven hundred to about nine hundred dollars, depending on the class you pick, right? So if you look for ten weeks and you decide it's not for you, you know, I wouldn't, I would even say that you get something out of it. You, you know, you found out that okay, cool, I don't want to do this. I'm not going to commit more money to this thing. So there's a big difference in terms of that. If you then get students who come in where they're just trying to find out if this is what they like, uh, I think that's, I think that's a really good sort of um, uh, avenue for a lot of people. Uh, in terms of age range, it's a little bit all over the place. You get some, I guess, kind of like FZD, you get some very young staff from high school. You have some people coming in over from Art Center who are looking just to top up some skills. I had one student who was a paramedic. Oh, wow. Before, uh, you know, looking for a career change. And just wanted to test to see if this is something they want to do. So, you know, it's more of a short-term approach, I think, a brainstorm. And not, you know, most of the time we think short-term is negative. I, I don't think it's negative in the sadly. It's quite positive because, you know, if concept art is not easy, right? You and I both know concept yeah. art is not easy. So you don't really want to commit everything and then find out it's not what you want to do. So I think it's a really great thing. And I think it's, it's great as well in terms of, you know, for example, if I want to go back and I want to learn how to paint, I can just pick up a painting class, right? I have to do like a full year to get to the advanced painting stuff. But I think that's the main difference. Like why, like brainstorm is a workshop. You're there to kind of, you're there to top up certain skills you think are not as strong. Whereas FZD is very much, we're gonna build you from the ground up, right? We're gonna build you from the ground up so you know exactly what you're doing, you know what's going on uh, and all that sort of stuff. Whereas brainstorm, I think is more in a position where you probably already know what's going on. Mm -hmm. You have some skills that you think are not as good, and so you just keep it kind of, you know, make them a little bit stronger, which is also why I love the classes are at night. allows people to, you know, get off work and go to attend the classes. So I think I think that's the biggest difference, is that the mind that mindset in terms of short term and long term, right? Whether it's just topping up a little bit or really just like a, you know, building from scratch ground up. Now the, given the, the fact that um you're teaching at Brainstorm. There are a lot more teachers or art directors or artists who come and teach shorter stints over there. How has that changed your networking ability within the industry? Uh, I gotta admit, I haven't even gotten a chance to network at all. Oh, okay. um, well, because I got there as coronavirus started. So there's no ability to kind of grab a coffee with someone or get to know people, you know, because, uh, you know, COVID came through and everybody is just, you know, a ball of anxiety of trying to figure out, like, what's going to happen next? What are we going to do next? Mm -hmm. um, early on, it's like, well, what's going to happen with production? Everything stopped, right? Uh, then it became, okay, well, how do we deal? How do we work from home? Uh, and then now you've got a whole bunch of people who are leaving LA because they're like, wait a minute, I don't have to show up to the office. I'm going to move to Texas or I'm going to move to Nevada, which has zero income tax. Right. Right. So you can't fault people who want to do that. So I haven't really gotten a chance to network at anybody just because there's so much going on in terms of there's so many things that people are having to deal with. I think networking is like, is not very high on anybody's list, right? It's just, you know, 
people are too busy trying to figure out like how they're going to deal with their healthcare, how they're going to deal with family members, how they're going to deal with work. Like, well, you have kids. How the hell are you going to get your kids to school and make sure that they're safe? Right. So yeah, this is this has been you know it's been pretty tough. Um, but having said that, I'm still gainfully employed, so I can't complain that much. I know a lot of people who have been not necessarily in the entertainment field, but definitely a lot of people outside the entertainment field have been laid off. Um, so I don't want to, you know, I certainly don't want to complain too much because as far as, you know, compared to the average person on the street, I'm doing quite well. And, so, you know, I, it, it seems, you know, I feel like a bit of an asshole if I'm complaining about like, well, I can't go out and get coffee. You know, well, this is not fair where people are like i'm struggling to pay rent you're like oh okay yeah it's definitely good to have that perspective between what's the reality and reality of other people outside you yeah. i mean it sucks but you know who who thought someone would fuck a pangolin and then now we have coronavirus <laughs> yeah i don't want to get into the whole thing over there we have no idea <laughs> yeah. i like this whether it's China, whether it's India, whether it's Australia, whether it's America, you have no idea where any of these pandemics are going to come from. It's just, you just got, um, whoever, wherever it starts, it's just, you just got unlucky. This could have easily happened. Like this could have come out from Brazil. It could have come out from Canada. It could have come out from anywhere. Anywhere, yeah. It's just like, okay, you got unlucky. And that, you know, okay, fine. You got unlucky. Let's just deal with it. But yeah, you do it. You know, you do have to make some jokes about it. Otherwise, if you take it, you just you lose your mind. Yeah, you'll just get overwhelmed all the time. So I wanted to know, like, what else are you up to apart from the professional side of things? Like, are, are you? Do you spend much time developing any personal projects? Maybe are you sharing some parts of it, or is it still under wraps? Okay, so I recently, um, I recently got. Okay, so I don't know. I think you might have known this when I was teaching. So I've been a lifelong Warhammer fan. Yeah. I, think I got into the hobby when I was like five or six or something like that. And because I was kind of working like a madman, I, I don't have a lot of time these days to um, to build or to paint anything. And no, I grew up also building like Gundam kits and things like that. So as a way to get around that, I got into like six, like one six scale collecting, right? So kind of like that, like, there are there are adult male Barbies, pretty much. It's like it's like Barbies for middle age. It's, it's pretty much like let's be real about this stuff. You can call it like collecting, you can call it whatever you want. It's when like, you put it that way, it reduces the cool factor, you know. It, it, it does a little bit. But I got into that because I thought, hey, you know what would be really cool if I could like build uh, like the concept art that I do. Like if I'm doing like costume stuff, it would be really cool if I could kind of build that. So I've been going to get into that recently and I got into 3D printing as well. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, hey, you know, as well, like, you know, Warhammer is kind of expensive and, you know, I need to build custom stuff. Why don't I start 3D printing? So I've been playing around with all of that stuff. Um, and yeah, that's been a lot of fun, uh, I got to admit, because it's kind of cool uh, to kind of, you know, to see the stuff you design get printed out. Uh, beyond that, that's pretty much the only personal project I really have the opportunity to work on because, you know, between teaching, between my freelancing stuff, um, other sort of um, other projects, and then just moving around, uh, 
I don't really have that much free time, you know, to be honest. Uh, thankfully, I don't play a lot of games. Mm-hmm. That's a big thing. Yeah, I, I get busy playing first-person shooters, so you know, that means that that whole entire genre of game is out. And so the only game that I play is kind of you know one of the, you know is is a, is one of the Total War games that that you know Creative Assembly makes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only time where I kind of lose time playing games is whenever they launch like a new DLC, and then you know after that it's really just maybe I might play it for like two three days and then put it down. Yeah, I, I was just mentioning that you had put up some work in progress stuff from your 3D printing collection, and I noticed you were doing it in SketchUp. Uh, was that part of the process? Yeah, so I, I, I have a weird love-hate relationship with SketchUp. Yeah, because you're uh, literally the only person I've seen doing 3D printing using SketchUp of all softwares. Okay, my wife has been on my back to learn Blender now. I think at this point now, it's about like, it's over a year. <laughs> and each time I go, yeah, yeah, I'll find time to do it. I'll find time to do it. But the thing is, I've used SketchUp for so long that just about anything I need to do, I can do it in SketchUp. So every time I open up Blender, I'm like, ah, oh, I really know how to do this in like in SketchUp. Why don't I just go back to SketchUp and do it? All right. Oh, Charles. Uh, and I know you have a special hate hate relationship with ZBrush. Yeah, but I, I I know you know deep down I need to get my shit together and because there's like there's organic forms that I need that I need to like I would like to better sculpt and I know that I can do them really easily in Blender, uh, but it's just you know it's no way to put it it's laziness it's just laziness yeah I'm being pig-headed and stubborn about it not switching over you know uh, but yeah I just I don't know I I find I find SketchUp easy to use. Like, it, I always struggle with with ZBrush. I the way that the program works and the way you build stuff just never click with me. Like somehow with SketchUp, the way that you need to create stuff makes a little bit more sense to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if that's because it reminds me of Lego, and so I just build stuff on top. You know, I stack things on top or something. I, I don't know if it's that because I didn't have much experience as a kid using clay. Okay. So this idea of like sculpting something is really is really strange to me. Yeah, but if you want me to build possibility, yeah. But if you want me to build something and build all the parts and put it together, I have no problems visualizing that and then putting it down in 3D. So you know it might be that, but you know, at the end of the day, I think it's just laziness. <laughs> it's just like I know how to use this thing. And being like a you know a stubborn mule and I don't want to, you know, don't want to switch. But I, I don't think, I, I think I've got another, about another year or two left in SketchUp. Like they're moving into cloud now. I think the program is, the new versions are definitely not as robust as what they used to be. And so inevitably I will have no choice but to switch to Blender. Right? And I have a feeling that by the time I get into Blender, there'll be something else and I'll just get really frustrated. Here. No, no, Blender's here to stay for a while, definitely. Well, that's what they said about Moto, right? For a while, yeah. Moto was. Moto came and Moto? went real quick. What the hell is Moto? Right? And then now there's VR stuff that you can do, right? And it's like, oh, God, like, at, have, at some have point... Have you gotten around experimenting much with VR? No, no, I haven't, I haven't committed to VR just because it's, it's... I'm not sure if it's going to work for my, like, workflow. I don't do, like, I don't do a lot of environments. So VR, you know, in terms of mocking things up, doesn't really help, right? Mm-hmm. I, 
you know, I, I do a lot of props, characters, hot stuff, stuff. So for me, it's actually a lot easier just to draw it than to build it out. Obviously, there's, you know, there's a usefulness of building stuff out in 3D and seeing it in 360 and all that sort of stuff. But at the same time, it's just, I do prefer to streamline my, um, the tools that I have. So you notice when I taught, when I taught you, when I opened up my Photoshop, everything was just the default package. Yeah. Because I just, I can't be bothered dealing with custom brushes. I can't be bothered dealing with I can draw this pretty quickly. Just let me draw it. Like these things, it's not that they necessarily slow me down. It's more just, it's an extra step that I feel isn't necessary, right? And even like for me, I don't open SketchUp unless I know that I need to. Unless I have ellipses in perspective, I don't open up SketchUp. Okay. Uh, you know, we can kind of sketch this stuff out if it's just you know straight edges. We can sketch it out in perspective pretty easily. Uh, you know, or if I need to fiddle around with camera angles, maybe I'll open up SketchUp. You know, just to have a look. Uh, but I, you know, I prefer like, a much more straight. Like if I could go back to just like Copic markers and a pen and paper, I would. Yeah, you would be pretty happy with that, definitely. Yeah. Uh, but uh, with the with the VR stuff, it's more, it's also because uh, it's a money issue for me. <laughs> I just I bought a three D printer, oh, so I'm okay. that. Uh, so I'm like, well, okay, the money either went into VR or either going to VR or going to three D printing. And I was like, well, three D printing lets me, you know, three D printing lets me make you know make custom stuff for my you know adult Barbies, you know, my <laughs> middle aged Barbies. So yeah, just gonna pick that. You gotta give yourself some toys once in a while, definitely. Uh, yeah. Um, that, that's the only thing I've been doing as uh, yeah, outside of work. I know it's getting late for you, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. Also, so you can let me know if it's you know getting okay. a bit late yeah. for you. Oh, it's nice to have a chat. I mean, you know, like you, I've kind of been locked inside for quite a while, so it's nice to have a conversation. That's true. And still, as well, like you know, we we can talk quite casually now. Whereas, you know, this is not a, this is not exactly a conversation that I would have with, let's say, a current student, mm -hmm. right? Because it would be a little bit inappropriate. Um, but, you know, so it's nice to be able to have these chats. Otherwise, you know, if, I'm just, if it's in a classroom environment, I'm, I'm just telling people what to do. Yeah, also, I mean, there needs to be some sort of proper student-teacher relationship at that point. So definitely good to yeah. maintain some boundaries at that point. Um, and, and I was... And I was maintaining that after I told you guys, like the moment you guys finished on an NCD, you weren't students anymore. You were you are colleagues, you are peers. So that you know that changes the dynamic as well. Like I'm sure there's a lot of things now that you can do, but I have no idea how to do. There's probably like it's probably a huge like you know amount of stuff that you could teach me now. You know, like Blender. <laughs> yeah, I mean I'm also learning myself all the time from the actual masters of Blender. But yeah, that's that's the thing that I really like about this industry actually, because every person is on their own path of exploration. So there's always something that you can learn. Yeah, it's, it makes it keeps it interesting. I mean, if we all do things the same way and we all end up with the same thing, then it's it'd just be really boring, right? Just it's just AI. It used to be like AI generated stuff. It's it's not, you know, it's not interesting. Uh, and I I, I try and. You know, when I when I have class, I try and tell students this as much as possible, which is I don't really care about how you draw. 
in terms of your style or you know whatever what i care about is your design what i care about is how you're thinking because when you're hired you know if, if someone wants something to look like it's been done by let's say doug chang they will hire doug chang they're not going to hire you right to yeah. do like a uh, so when they hire you, like for example, if someone comes to you, Sid, and they hire you, they want stuff that looks like, you know, stuff that you did. You know, they don't want you to copy someone else. They want you. That's why they find you. Know, that's why they found you. So you know, this is something that I think is pretty important. To, you know, for for younger students, right? Because they come in thinking that am I going to draw like so and so? I got to, you know, this has to look like whatever. And it's like, no, not really. You know, you know, when when you look at a piece by uh, Spark, or when you look at a piece by you know whoever you know whoever it might be, yes, the technical skill is superb, and of course we want to strive to hit that as well. But you know what they real what makes them stand out is the idea behind it. What makes the design really pop is that that thinking a depth of thinking of what they can sell, what they can kind of make you feel. That's the stuff that's important, particularly now. And that's over decades of developing that sensibility and taste. Uh, uh, and everybody's going to have different tastes, right? Because every project is going to be different. Uh, no, no design problem is ever the same, right? It can be similar, but it's never going to be the same. We never have an identical sort of design problem. Because uh, you know, if it's identical, the problem's already been solved. You don't need any more work on it. Yeah. So this is a question that I get asked quite often from like students or people who are trying to get into the industry. Like, how do they tailor their portfolio towards a particular studio? Because they get worried that they are narrowing down their chances too much, versus trying to develop a very broad portfolio, which in turn would take much much longer. How would you? approach that situation if you were in their position? So I think there's two ways to approach it. There's the first way, which is numbers, right? You look at the numbers in terms of how many job openings for environment concept artists there, you know, there is, or you know, compared to characters. You can also have a look at, okay, let's play a game and let's go into that game and see how many of each thing there is. And so you can calculate it by numbers and say, okay, well, Really, there are more environments than there are characters. So then the demand for environments is higher, right? So then I'm going to do a lot of environments. If my only goal is to get a job as a concept artist, then that's what I would do. I'd play it by numbers. Mm -hmm. But that can be kind of shitty if you don't like environments. Right? Exactly. Right. So the other approach then is, okay, um, what do I like? Okay, let's say I like doing props, I like doing props and stuff. There are vehicles and planes and spaceships, that sort of stuff. Then I want to look at, well, what studios do that? Whether it's you know, AAA, AA, indie, uh, outsourcing studios, what do they do? So if you want to apply for, let's say, character over in Berlin, I think they're in Berlin, they're in Germany, so I think Berlin. Um, so they're an outsourcing studio. If you want to apply for character, well, you better have a lot of character work. They do environments as well, but you know, the character stuff is pretty amazing. Uh, or, you know, or let's say you want to, you know, you like FPS games. 
right, authors and tutors, your stuff better be photorealistic. Mm -hmm. Like, because that's what they do. You can't, you can't show up to a Boss Baby interview, like, you know, Boss Baby 3. You can't show up to a, like a, a review for that and have a portfolio full of stuff that's for doom. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work. So, yeah, it's kind of annoying that you have to tailor your portfolio, but then you also, but, but I, think to, I think the advice should be you tailor it based off what you want to do, right? Don't narrow it down to one IP, but narrow it down to at least a genre. So, if you like sci fi, have a sci fi portfolio. If you hate sci fi, don't have spaceships. And find out, kind of have a list. I'd say, I'd recommend like have a list of like five studios you would like to work for. Mm -hmm. If they all do different things, you should probably reassess that list. But most likely for most people, those five studios are going to have a lot in common. And that's how you find out what uh what you should you know build towards that portfolio in your experience after teaching for so long how often are students able to come up with this kind of clarity and realization on their own or do they yep. generally need some sort of guidance to be able to come to this conclusion I, i've never encountered a student where they come to this conclusion and i've never i've never encountered a student who uh, after i told them about this actually did it <laughs> I have encountered students who have gone and tried it their way and failed and then done it this way and then kind of succeeded. Uh, it, it comes back to what Feng taught us, which is, you know, studios don't hire based off potential. They hire based on what they need, right? Um, you don't go to the supermarket, for example, buying off potential. You go to the supermarket buying what you need, right? like what you think you need. Uh, you don't stand in on the aisle and go, maybe in three years I might need this, right? You go, I need this right now or you know, this week. So I think I think that's one thing that you know is really important. The other thing I'd, I'd say is like get that like get off ArtStation and get off Instagram or any other social media. It, it, the, the stuff is beautiful on the on, on those platforms. But not all of it is concept art. Yeah. I think that what people understand what concept art is, or at least what the purpose of concept art is. Uh, Charles, could you just speak up a bit louder? Sorry, you're... Oh, so I was saying, I think the stuff warps what people think concept art is, rather than what it really is. Mm -hmm. right? Because if you see these beautiful illustrations, it's easy to think that that's concept art. But it's not. Right? It's illustrative. Content artists have done in their free time to relax. It's not work. I mean, you and I both know work is really kind of boring sometimes. This is like, you know, give me, you know, five versions of this one thing with minor changes, right? It's not the epic landscape with this hero fighting this giant demon sort of thing. Very rarely do you get to do something like that. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so and this is something my, that I think Feng definitely iterates in almost every design cinema that he does. Because it, you know, it, it, yeah, it, the stuff can be really distracting. So for sure, like I, I think, yeah, definitely my, you know, in terms of if you want to build a good portfolio, first of all, get off these platforms. Stop looking at them. Look at them in your own time, right? Or look at them after you finish everything. But at least when you're building your own work, don't look at that stuff because it's it's so easy to get distracted by it as well.
I don't know about you, sometimes when I go on that station, it's not clicking. And then like two hours later, I realize like, holy crap, like, what is this Yeah, absolutely. I was just about to add to that. Like, even as a professional, you should be careful of the amount of time you're wasting or yeah. researching, looking at art station or other artists' work because it's it's always important to look at the work to understand what benchmarks are being set, but also keep your sources of inspiration fresh and not get derivative in terms of the work that you're looking at. I think if you're going to look at other artists' work, I think the, like, at least for me, I prefer to look at their sketches mm-hmm. or their sort of drawings. I find that more interesting. I find that more useful as well because at least that is like, oh, I can like, I can try and pull for ideas they end up not using. Uh, or like find a new workflow. But if it's a finished piece, well, it's like, yeah, it looks amazing. Like, it's beautiful, the finish is beautiful, but you know, let's be very honest here, from a professional point of view, you know, what do I do with it? It's done. Mm, like, that's true. Short of doing fan out of it, like, there's, like okay, what, what do I do with it now? It's kind of like when I, I, for me, when I build model kits, it's really fun when I'm building them, but once I'm done, I don't know what to do with it because it's like, well, it's, it's done. What do I, I guess I just put it in a corner somewhere. Or you could sell them. I, yeah, but yeah, but for me, like the fun part is building the stuff. And okay. so the fun part is designing, figuring out what's going to work, right? If it's just about the finish, uh, I personally, I, I'm not that interested in it. Yeah. So talking about technique, your work generally revolves quite heavily around line work and really crisp line work, if I might add. And I've always really admired the kind of finesse you're able to generate through that line work. Is that something that you've naturally had ever since the beginning of your career or did you kind of lean into uh, it slowly? I, so, okay, I grew up as a kid reading a lot of comic books, right? So when I was, a, when I was drawing, it was just lines. I never really got a feel of color, right? Because obviously growing up comic books, it's really kind of stuff is like almost like you know bucket field, right? You saw like guys with these bucket So paintings and stuff, I was never really that interested in. So it's not that I can't paint. I mean, you know, you've seen me paint before. I mean, I taught you, you know, visual painting, and you've probably seen a couple of my environment pieces floating around online that are for the movies uh, yeah so it's not that I can't do it it's just more that I don't have the, I, I guess I just don't have the patience for it I don't have the patience or the want for it so I generally don't do it outside of work so you know that's why if you see my personal pieces very rarely is it painting uh, unless I'm trying to test out like a new workflow to see if I can adapt it for you know actual production uh, and so I find line work very, I find line work very calming. I find line work very enjoyable to do. And, and it's also because with design, I like my designs to be very precise. I like to be very explicit about, you know, this is a hinge. This is a door handle. I, I don't particularly like to suggest things. Okay. Right. Maybe it's like a weird control issue of like, I need the 3DRs to know exactly what this is. I don't want them to make anything up sort of thing. That's the industrial designer in you crawling back yeah. out of the shadows. Um, so, you know, it's, it's probably that that's bleeding through. But I don't think it's a natural, like, I, I don't think it's like a, a natural talent. I think it's just I've been doing it longer. Because I've been doing it longer and it 
you know, it satisfies my need to, you know, for that precision. You know, I kind of lean into it as a result. I certainly don't think it's uh, a result of any natural talent or anything like that. Like all these skills, there's a lot of hard work to get there. So what's inspiring you these days? Is there any movies or books that you've read recently that have shaken things up? No, not for a long time. And it's, and it's just, I've just been doing a lot of client work, so I haven't really had time to sit down and, and kind of view anything. Um, and, you know, I, yeah, it, it sounds kind of sad. It's like, yeah, not much is really, I wouldn't say not much has inspired me. I'm, I'm still inspired in terms of, I, I like doing work, but I think, like, I, I've been lucky with the clients that I've gotten in that have offered me work in a whole range of different subject matters. So they've kept me inspired, just like, oh, okay, I didn't think about this. Like, I had a recent client that, like, they're like, hey, I know this is not in a warehouse, but we need to draw some cute things. I was like, oh, okay, this is this is going to be a bit of a challenge. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, nothing in particular. But I'm actually planning, you know, into into January and into February, uh, taking a little bit of time off. Just to kind of you know rest a little while. Otherwise, I've been working pretty consistent, like nonstop, pretty much for the last probably the last year and a half. Ooh, yeah, that's really, a long stretch. Really year and a half. I haven't really had like a holiday. Last holiday I took was like a weekend. I took a weekend off uh, back in like I think like June or something. I, I took a weekend off. Um, so yeah, like I, I think come you know come the new year, I'll probably take the first two months. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll wrap up whatever contracts I have, and I'll probably you know, probably take a month or two off, and yeah, actually, you know, get inspired again by saying weird and crazy, and do some personal pieces, or just you know sit on my couch and just. Yeah. <laughs> I remember last year you had made these series of goblins for Inktober, I think. That series oh, yeah. was so funny. Oh, I really liked it a lot. Yeah. So that was um, so I so I did that as like I find a lot of stuff I do is kind of work related. So that was because I was trying to I was trying to like test out a way of working. Right. I was trying to test out can I achieve the same level of like information clarity with just a much looser way of drawing. Mm, okay. Because I'd set my, my way of working with I'm going to work on an A3 canvas and I'm going to set the zoom level at 25% and draw this. And I wanted to see if I can do it. If you zoom in, like the lines are all really wiggly and jagged, you know, like all jagged. But I wanted to see, like, could I get the same level of um, clarity by kind of setting that, that, uh, setting that constraint? So that was just me testing. I was like, is there a way that I could work faster? Is there a way that I could work where it's a little bit easier? Um, but yeah, they were kind of fun. I think I did those, oof, that would have been two years ago, maybe, I think. Oh, well, already? That's time flies yeah. by then. Yeah. That was quite a while ago. Uh, yeah, time, Jesus, like time flies, right? It wasn't, I mean, if you think about it, it really wasn't that long when, you know, we were, yeah, we were back in, back in Singapore in class. Yep, definitely. So I think back now. Sorry, go ahead. I was, 
Okay. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was gonna say, you know, I, I think right now it's like, wow, it's a flick of an eye and it's been like you know, five years from when I joined FZD. Well, I guess now like getting close to six years and when I joined FZD, right? Wow. And I was like, cool. Yeah, like time goes really fast. Uh, I mean, you know, we're reaching the end of the year now. Yeah, I mean, even this year has felt like it's just gone by so fast, especially because we've basically been sitting at home and working the entire time. Yeah. So, yeah, time goes, jeez, time goes by real quick. Have you wanted to say something before? Yeah, I think I lost the train of thought. That's okay. I think the one, yeah, one last thing that I wanted to talk to you about was given the fact that you're pre predominantly working freelance apart from the teaching, where do you generally get the jobs from because this is something that i personally want to know as well as i'm sure a lot of people have this doubt like people who work freelance how do they how do they generate those leads to continue working so yeah that was something that terrified me as well when i was freelancing so i try and make sure that every client i get um, i try and cultivate a really good relationship with them because you know but with the freelance okay so the main freelance work i get today uh it's from a connection that i made at lightbox um last year so that was the main connection and that kind of started up very slow and you know you build up some trust and so on and, and it's also timing sometimes it's timing so they had me on early on just to fill a couple of gaps so it's actually with um, i was with west studio so early on they had me fill out some gaps i was actually doing some support work for, I think, um, for some of the environments that uh, Ken did, another FZD grad. Ken did a lot. Of, yeah, he did a lot of the environment stuff. And, I, and at the time, I got those images and they needed stuff fleshed out a little bit more. I looked and I was like, geez, they look like, it looks like an FZD drawing. <laughs> um, but um, so that I was doing, so that's kind of, you know, I've, I've managed to build up a pretty good relationship with those guys. And, they're really great to work with. Um, you know, they're really nice, really, uh, you know, really quickly, just like very well organized and very, really professional. Um, so that's kind of been my main freelancing um, sort of uh, connection. Other stuff has actually come through just, you know, stuff that I never get work based off, um, I never get work based off concept art I put up online. I really get a lot of like most of my kind of independent contract stuff comes from like fan art or little things I'm just scribbling on the side. So yeah, it's kind of weird. Like I, I'd love to say like this is the this is the way to get freelancing work, but it's just it's being kind of chaotic in the way that I've got freelancing work. And I have to admit, you know, if I were to go back to full time freelance, I would be terrified because I would just, you know. You, you'd kind of like, you're kind of left like scrambling in the dark. Um, it gets a lot safer, I suppose, once you have, let's say, two or three long term clients. Mm -hmm. But that's the one thing I hate about freelancing, which is that anxiety of do they have work for me? Do I have work for them? Am I going to have work next week? I think that's where I guess building out. Uh awareness of your own brand is quite important yeah and, and i hate doing that <laughs> <laughs> I, I hate doing that it's just it's 
But, you know, you have no choice. It's no different than in the past having to cold call, um, you know, studios and offices and say, hey, do you have an opening and so on? Can I come down and so on? It's no different than doing that. Um, but, you know, I, at least for me, finding freelancing work is a terrifying experience. One that I don't really particularly enjoy. But I also understand that, well, if you don't get out there and look for work, work is not going to come find you. Yeah. How it's always been, um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I certainly—if you certainly know like a formula of doing this, I would like—I would like to know. No, I—I I, I definitely, for one, don't know because I haven't done much freelance at all. So that's why it's quite a tricky thing because even people who have been working for a while can't pinpoint a particular answer and say this is how it's done. It's just about yeah. being taking the initiative. I think is quite important. The old way I heard of doing this, but this is going back with guys who were, you know, who were freelancing out like 20 something years ago. You, the old way of doing things was you work at a studio, you work there long enough, then you leave. And then you start doing outsourcing stuff for that studio that you used to work for. Oh. Uh, and then you spin that off into then hiring people under you. So then you become that third party outsourcing studio. It's kind of the old way of, uh, uh, at least from what I've heard of, but you know that that all of that stuff is like that's too intensive uh, setup these days. Also, because knows? I mean now there are far more concept artists or people wanting mm-hmm. to get these jobs that you're competing with. So I don't know. I, I think I think the job. I think there's still the same amount of jobs because. Mm-hmm. But you also have more games, more films, more TV, more studios, right? That's true. But I think I think the amount of work is still there. I think there's a lot of work. It's a matter. I think more now is because there's more of everything. I think studios can now are in a position where they can choose type of concept artists that they want to pick their show. So in the past, maybe if you did horror, if you like doing horror, you could work on a concept art because they just didn't have. There's not enough studios. There's not enough concept artists, right? Mm-hmm. If you're a horror guy, you know, then only horror studios will look for you. The other guys, like sci-fi studios, they're going to look for sci-fi guys because they now have more options. I think it's more like that now that I think that specialization is a little bit more like keen, a little bit more important now than what it was. But, you know, I could be wrong. This is just from my sort of view, like from what I've seen, I, I'm kind of, kind of trying to hypothesize, like guess a pattern that's happening. No, I, I definitely do agree with you to, to that aspect of specialization. What I've felt personally is that specialization is quite important early on to start the path of your working career and then keep experimenting on the side so that you're developing additional skills and keep yourself you relevant. You gotta have that voice, like you know, what do you you gotta go look at yourself and go like be able to see like what do you like doing? It's it's easy to be able to look at work and go like, yeah, it's good, but I can tell people did this didn't exactly enjoy it. Like it wasn't uh, there's no passion in that work. Kind of easy to see that. Uh, you know, you're absolutely right. Like it wouldn't say like you would you would specialize, you know, hundred percent, but more like have a direction. Hmm. Like I remember, you had a very, you had a very clear sci-fi direction. Um, 
and it showed in that you you know when you when I saw your pieces or when people saw your pieces, it showed that hey, you you really it, it looks like when you could feel that you enjoyed it, like you liked it. Now whether the process was enjoyable is a different question or a different sort of thing altogether, but you can tell like the like the subject matter is like hey, this guy really likes this. Like they're they're really looking at this and you know trying to figure things out. Uh, that stuff is really easy to see. Like whether you know, essentially, it comes down to like whether or not you give a shit. Right? That stuff is easy to see. Was it the same for you when you were doing your East to West project? Uh, the East West project was okay. So that was a bit of an experiment in so much as uh, I didn't have a, I didn't have my work wasn't great coming out from term three. It was actually all over the place, and. I say that that's because, you know, I, I just, I'm just not very good at dealing with short-term, like short-term routes. I have a really hard time kind of, you know, it takes me a while to kind of bite into a, a project. And so East-West was a project that Fane kind of came up with, where he said, okay, well, you know, I have an interest in history. And so he said, okay, well, you have an interest in history, you like my work, Let's do a Tintin-like project. Okay. Right. So that your strengths. So I think what he was trying to do was to, to kind of build up my confidence. Uh, like, okay, let's do something easy that you know how to do. But let's get that pipeline built so that you get that confidence. You understand how things work. So I, you know, so when I did, and we also at that time also learning just learning how to use three D in my pipeline. And so you see some of the early early stuff for, uh, you know, East West. You know, it was really stiff, was really sort of like, you could tell it was a SketchUp model underneath, right? <laughs> With because the first time I was really using this program, beforehand, I was just hand plotting everything out, which took forever. But so things said, okay, well, you like history, let's do history. 1930s, 1920s, 1930s is generally pretty fun. Transitional periods of history are always really interesting. We will do it. Um, as line work with like Tintin, where it's kind of comic book-ish. So again, it plays to your strengths of line work and you don't have to paint anything, which is great. And so that's kind of where that came from. But if you saw my second project, which was uh, Leviathan, that was, you know, kind of like old school hard, well, not hard science fiction, but like industrial science fiction. And at that point, like the 3D, you couldn't really see anymore. The line work was much looser. And at least from my point of view, I would assess it in terms of if I looked at that project, I'd say whoever did that enjoyed the process, enjoyed the whole thing of doing that. Mm -hmm. If I looked at East West, I'd say whoever did that has a keen interest in that subject matter. They may not necessarily have liked the process, but they definitely liked and were very interested in the subject matter. So that would be kind of how I would, you know, if I were to look at my own work, that would be how I would assess it. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, you you saw those pieces. What what what's your opinion? You know, what's your assessment? I think definitely um, your love for line work shows through quite well in both the projects. What really stood out to me was that the process of development of a project over the course of a couple of months that was quite strong, and I feel like that same process can be applied to any project even today. So, if somebody is trying to learn how to develop a project on their own. I think that's a very good insight into how you developed it. And of course, you were getting guidance from Kingston, Feng, Zue, everyone. So I think that's a pretty good way to 
know how to deconstruct and approach a project, no matter whether you're painting it out or 3D or line work. I wish, I wish, and maybe I'll do this in January or February where I'll actually set time aside and try and redo a project with that same, uh, with that same sort of feel in so much as, I mean, you know, with work and, you know, all this stuff, like you really get the time to kind of sit down and just work on your own thing, not like uninterrupted for like, you know, two months. Yeah, that's practically impossible unless you take a break. That's a luxury that you're like, oh man, I wish, you know, give me 14 weeks to do my own thing again. That would be wonderful, right? But I didn't have to worry about like, you know, paying rent and bills and all this stuff. <laughs> That's the irony, right? While you're looking for a job, you so badly want to enter a studio or get freelance. But the moment that process starts, you long for that personal work. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's a constant balance. It's, it's a struggle. Uh, don't get me wrong. I, I love getting paid, right? I, I, I love getting like, you know, um, you know, happy face emojis from my clients, <laughs> right? It was good because, you know, you, you've done a good job. It feels good. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think after, you know, since it's about a year and a half since I've really done anything myself, you know, it would be too bad to kind of revisit that. Yeah, it'll be fun to see how you approach it and what you think about what you did back then because it's been a while, definitely. It'll be interesting how you approach yeah. it. Well, you know, actually, uh, I take that back. Like the last time I got to do it, was, actually, wasn't an AD project. It was actually under the mentorship with with John. Mm-hmm. I do something like that again because that was three months. Where, well, okay, it was about two months. Uh, actually, no, yeah, yeah, a, a little under two months where I worked on just a single project. Okay, and that that was a lot of fun. So that was the um, the Gundam redesign. Well, we set it to like uh, mobile one. Uh, so that one was kind of fun as well. That was, it was a little bit grueling though, because, uh, it, you know, the demand, the level of demand, the level of finish as well was obviously much higher. And it was, and all of, most of the end, the end product was painted as well. Right. So uh, it took a little bit more time, but that, that was, that was quite rewarding as well. I was freaking exhausted after that though. Like that was, uh, I think it was like, I think it, I did 200 thumbnails for him uh, in the course of five days. It was like 200 thumbnails. Wow. And then I think, uh, uh, because, okay, so my, being the idiot that I am, I just assumed whatever he sent me was was reasonable. It's like, okay, if that's what we want them to do, I guess I can do it in a week. And then I talked to him afterwards and I was like, he was like, I was like, man, you know, I don't know how I can, like, I can keep this pace up. It's exhausting. He's like, oh, I just kind of randomly gave you numbers. I didn't think you would actually do them. (laughs) That's the beauty of not knowing how long things could take sometimes because then you just dive into it. We had a laugh about it afterwards, but at the time I was like, crap, is this what I have to do? So yeah, I, I definitely don't try and do that that much these days, right? Because you know, I, I try and plan everything out and like as an eight-hour workday, um, just so that I, you, know, you don't want your life to be just consumed by constant art. That, that's not a very healthy way of living. Mm-hmm. Maybe when I, you know, if I was 21, 22, it'll be all right. But like I said, I'm in my I'm in my mid 30s now. It's not, you know, I have other more important things. Like I want to. So you asked me, like, you know, if I've been playing games or watching movies or anything that's inspired me. 
part of the reason why the answer is no is because I, you know, at this point, a lot of things I want to do is kind of like, well, I want to spend time with my wife. I want to cook. Uh, you know, I want to do other things that actually have nothing to do with entertainment, mm-hmm. right? So that's you know that's why I haven't been reading as much or I haven't been you know consuming as much content. It's just well you know there's other things that I want to do at this point. But probably if I'm 21, 22, it's a completely different story. Definitely, I think the priorities are different. Age age is quite different, and what you need at that particular time is quite different as well. Yeah. And I would imagine, you know, I imagine for you, that's probably the same as well, right? Like in terms of, you know, over time, not, not like not immediately, but I can imagine like over time, let's say from when you were 18 to now, like, you know, some of what you value has changed. Definitely. I think I've become, I'm trying to be rather more careful of what projects, personal projects specifically, I'm trying to dedicate my time towards and also thinking about what I want to do couple of years down the line so planning those kind of things in advance but i wouldn't say anything else has taken any kind of higher priority just yet i think my work is still definitely the most important thing for me as of now oh yeah no don't get me wrong like my working career uh you know for me is still quite important and and let's not beat around the bush here as well like as as men we do have that societal pressure of we need to build a career right we need to Need to make enough money, build a career, uh, and you know whether we want, you know, if we want, you know, have a family, be capable of having a family, sort of thing. Like you know, we we can be as you know, we can be as modern as we like, but the reality is like a lot of these social pressures are not going away anytime soon. Right? But try and fight as much as you can, but it's still it's still there. So you know, my career and my work still is quite important. Uh, but more just in my free time, mm-hmm. play a game, or do I want to, you know, do something uh, outside with my life, right? right. Then I'm going to go outside with my life, playing a game, just because, you know, I've been playing games since I was 15 or, or younger, right? I've, I've had I've had enough feel. Like, I've, I'm happy with the games that I've played. I mean, I'll be happy if I get to play more, but if I don't, I don't get the chance to play, let's say, now it's okay it's i'm okay. happy to yeah i can wait a couple of months and play it later it's not you know it's not the end all sort of thing but you know when i was 21 i i would have just yeah i would have like climbed mountains uh you know moved mountains to play it like now <laughs> buy the latest game at 12 a.m sharp and start playing right yeah i'm lined up for Starcraft 2, right? I remember like I, I I line up like Diablo 2 as well. I had like, you know, trying to, I, I remember trying to get out of school early because I was still in high school at the time. <laughs> uh, you know, that changes now. Now it's like, what? No, I, I'm just, I'll get it later. It's a single player game. It's not going anywhere. That's true. Yeah, it was yeah. quite nice yeah. seeing uh, like Philip's work in the concept art for Valhalla, he had put out some. Oh, work. Man. Uh, you know, Philip has like his work has always been exceptional. And yeah, he was eighteen when he joined SED as well, and it was already. I remember, like sometimes I looked at him, like I don't know why you're here. Like I don't know what you're doing. 
Like, what are you getting out from this place that you, you don't already know? I think Philip worked on it. Uh, Gabriel Tan, I think it was, uh, it, was a, it was a couple of ideas above you, I think. Okay. He worked on it, some boring guy. Um, Natasha Tan, uh, she was a couple of, a year or two above me at MZD. She worked on it as well, but a whole bunch of guys worked on that. I was really surprised by it the numbers uh, number of people who worked on that yeah i think it's it's just kind of worked out that way that wherever there's a ubisoft location there are quite a few people from mzd even uh yash i don't know if you remember him he's also yeah. working in ubisoft mumbai so mm-hmm. they're like people from mzd in almost all ubisofts that i know of well i, I guess mzd really lived up to uh lived up to the promise of uh, giving people work definitely yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah, it, it's amazing. Just like, it's so cool to be able to see, like, you know, it's, it's for me at least, it's really, it, it's really cool for me to see uh, stuff like that, right? Especially since I, you know, I talked to most of you guys for Term 1 and Term 2. So it's great to be able to, like, you know, and I still have, I still have copies, you know, of, stuff that you guys did for homework oh wow uh, that's so nice of you to keep it all this while uh, well sometimes it just floats around because you need to do like assessments and things but sometimes i still like i still find it occasionally like oh i didn't know this was your year and you kind of look at that and then you're like wow okay and now this guy's working on assassin's creed this guy's working on you know tomb raider or uh or working on a marvel film or something like that it's like damn that is so cool right uh to be able to see yeah, what's that tagline that they have? Like one year makes a one difference. One year makes a difference, yeah. <laughs> but it's true. Like if you want to put, you know, you want to put in the hours, you want to do the 16 hours a day, you, you can get there. Uh, just it depends how badly do you want this. Although and I definitely want to add a caveat that the 16 hours a day really depends on what level you join the school at. Like if you have a good experience beforehand yeah it necessarily might not be 16 hours a day but I, I, but you know I, i'd say for most people whether you end up at, at mzd whether you end up at sim studio in over montreal new age or wherever i wager that the vast majority of people who sign up to do this stuff just don't want it badly enough right and that's not the same that they are lazy it's just more that Sometimes you think this is something that you want until you do it and then you realize this is not what you want. Yeah, unless you're in that grind and I think it's when you see other people put in that kind of effort and you see, am I putting in that kind of effort compared to the other person? Do I need that artwork to look good badly enough? That's when that self-reflection is important. It's, uh, but yeah, no, I, I think... I think Feng was quite right when he described it to us. Is that like if you don't like this job, or if you don't like doing this, it's going to be very lonely. Hmm. I think I think he's absolutely right, especially now with coronavirus. <laughs> it's definitely very lonely. Yeah. Uh, but that's the thing. Like I gotta admit, like when I work on the stuff at home, it doesn't make a difference whether I'm at home or in the office. I'm having fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and you know, so I think it's absolutely right in terms of like if you don't like this, this is going to be really but if you do enjoy it, while you're going to have days that you're going to get frustrated in, it, you know, like you said, you know, at, at the, you know, the net, there's a net positive at the end of things. Right? 
Well, that's a. I think that's a good note to close the conversation on. We've been going for yeah. two hours. Yeah. It's been a. It's been a. Yeah, it's been a long time since I got to got to chat with you. I think last time was uh, at the grad show. Yeah, I remember was... after the grad show we had gone out for drinks. I think that's the last. Time. Yeah. Wow. That was yeah. That was the last time. Uh, you know, after you know, people finish and then we all kind of disappear and we go off. You know, and go back to our neck of the woods. But so it's nice to have these chats. I think it's a great idea with what you're doing here with these sort of more casual uh, podcast or uh, things. Like, good idea, man. I mean, to be completely honest, it's not like something original. I just I'm just looking at what people are doing kind of building communities and talking to people. I think that I, that was something that I was missing, staying at home all the time. So just thought it's the a thing good thing. The thing is you're doing it, right? You're not just, you're doing it. You're, you're not just talking about it. Well, I mean, we're literally talking about it as well. But, <laughs> you know, doing something about it. So yeah, because, you know, we can come up with all the ideas that we want, but if you don't do it, just like, just like what we do for work, you can talk about all the ideas you have, but if you don't draw it, you know, it's, it doesn't, you know, it may as well never have existed. That's true. Well, Charles, thank you so much for your time. It was really good no. catching up. It's been a while. Yeah. Well, good luck with uh, with your work and, you know, try not to get too stir-crazy locked up by yourself inside. Thank you. Yeah.